So this fall, as we go through the weeks, I began uh, a series of talks um, last Monday um, on the qualities of attention, starting with the general respect for our human capacity to listen. And I'd like to expand that over the weeks to follow the four foundations of mindfulness and the teachings of the Buddha on that, and the whole notion of awareness or attention that's so central to awakening in Buddhist practice. I'll do so, but not in the systematic order that one finds in the sutras, but rather um, kind of wander through the domains of attention. The most important teaching of the Buddha on awareness or mindfulness or presence, called the Sutra on the Establishment of Mindfulness, was given at one time in a market town of the Kuru people in North India as the Buddha wandered there with some of his followers. And he said to those around him, my friends, and they said, yes, yes, uh, yes, sir, yes, master. Buddha said, my friends, there is a most wonderful way to help living beings realize purification, overcome quite directly grief and sorrow, end pain and anxiety, travel the true path, and realize nirvana. This is the four establishments or the four foundations of mindfulness. What are these four? My friends, a practitioner remains established in awareness of the body, diligent, with clear understanding, mindful, having abandoned every dislike and grasping. They remain established in observation or awareness of feelings, diligent, with clear understanding, mindful, having abandoned again every distaste and every grasping, simply noticing the nature of body and feelings, simply noticing the nature of mind and of all that's contained in mind, the laws of the body and mind. Then the Buddha goes on. How does a practitioner begin establishing this attention in the body? They go to a forest to the foot of a tree or an empty room, sit down cross-legged or in some stable posture, and establish mindfulness or awareness in front of them with their whole attention, being aware as they breathe in, aware as they breathe out. He continues talking about awareness of the breath, awareness of body, awareness of feelings. This particular discourse or teaching from the Buddha begins in a way as an invitation It is an invitation to well-being, happiness, purity, to that which is timeless or deathless, the nirvana that the Buddha spoke of, peace. The first step of the practice of this teaching is simply to stabilize the heart and mind and body, to connect ourselves together so that we can be present in this timeless moment, just now. So let us talk further about this sense of presence or mindfulness. We'll do that over a number of weeks this fall. There are two key elements. The first is a steadying or focusing of attention. So the mind is not distracted and lost in a hundred other places, you know, that distractedness that comes over us so easily in our time, where you drive from one place to another and you arrive at your destination and wake up and realize that you have no recollection of the entire drive or where you've been. Sleep driving, right? So the first key element is a connecting, a steadying, a focusing, so that we're actually here, alive, awake. The second key element is when coming into the present, an opening of our eyes, our senses, and our heart to see and feel and listen deeply to understand what's here in front of us. 
And that's what we talked about somewhat last week in listening. Now, as we start to come more into the present and be more aware, very often the first things that we encounter are small or large, sometimes even monumental distractions and difficulties. Sounds that distract us, sensations, pains, patterns of tension in the body. And then even more than that, moods, feelings, and the movement of mind, the thoughts, plans, fears, imaginings, the waterfall inside. What does the Buddha say? in teaching this capacity for presence. He goes on in another section of this teaching. He says, begin by noticing the breath and the body, being aware of the feelings that arise, those that are pleasant and unpleasant. And once you've established yourself well here, then, or even begun to establish yourself, then begin to notice the forces which carry you away so that when you are aware and present, you can also notice the mind of wanting has arisen, or the mind of aversion, or the mind of fear, or the mind of distractedness. He goes on, how does the practitioner remain established in the awareness of mind and experience in sitting and meditation? They observe or sense directly the experiences of mind with regard to the difficulties, the distractions themselves. How is this done? For example, when sensual desire is present in them, they are aware, ah, desire, sensual desire is present. When sensual desire is not present, they are aware, ah, sensual desire has passed, is not present. When it begins to arise, they are aware of it. When it has already arisen, they are aware. When it is released or abandoned, they are aware of it. They become aware of the forces of wishing, hoping, desiring, longing that take us out of the present. And he goes on to talk about being aware of the other forces of mind that arise in our life, that take us from living fully here and now. These can be called the distractions, the entanglements. And I want to speak more about desire tonight because it's so powerful and because it's so illustrative of our human predicament. How to understand it? Let me see here. Desire, one word in English yet characterized in many different ways. It makes the world go round, if you haven't noticed. There's desire for food, pleasure, ice cream, sweets, no different kinds of delicious tastes, desire for beautiful sounds and beautiful sights. There's desire for survival. There's just desire for enough to eat or enough warmth, or enough cool, or enough protection for our body. There's sensual attachment, desire for pleasures of the senses. There's romantic desire. There's desire for meaningful work. Desire for connection with one another. Desire for the well-being of our children. Desire for love. Desire for self-improvement. Desire for awakening. Desire for freedom. All different kinds of desires, aren't there? Now, in some spiritual teachings, it's said that our incarnation, our coming into this life, is solely a product of desire, that we got ourselves into this by one force, wanting. You wanted it, and now you have it. You wanted to see, hear, smell, taste, have experiences of the world, and that energy of consciousness creates birth. In that sense, we are desire beings. And as babies are born, you can see the desire for hunger, for milk and comfort and warmth and all of those things. 
part, of, part and parcel of being born in the human incarnation. But that may not be the only thing that we are as beings of desire. Perhaps we incarnate to learn lessons or to serve one another or be compassionate in the world. And that's something you'll have to figure out for yourself. What are you doing here? Really, it's a good question, isn't it? If we start to be aware, as the Buddha suggests, of the body and mind and notice desire, when it arises, it can be experienced as a contraction of body and mind, of our being. We can feel it as a contraction physically or emotionally. Sometimes we can feel it as a hole somewhere in us. Hunger, a hole in our belly, or hunger for love, a hole someplace else in us that's empty, that has a sense of wanting, longing, hunger in it. So that's one aspect of desire, this emptiness that wants to be filled. Another aspect of it is a kind of blindness, The saying in India is that when a pickpocket meets a saint, they see only the saint's pockets. (coughs) That is, that what you want blinds you, and that's all that you see. If you're hungry and you walk down the street, you mostly see restaurants. Maybe I'll have Thai food. There's a Thai restaurant on every block now, so that's... uh, Or maybe I'll have Mexican food, or whatever it happens to be. You don't tend to see shoe stores when you're hungry. You see shoe stores when your feet hurt and you want a new pair of shoes. Then you see all the shoe stores that you've passed all those days and didn't notice. So our desires not only come out of this hole in us at times, but they limit what we see. If we want something, we go and we move through the world looking for it and seeing very little else. That's only one kind of desire. In Sanskrit or Pali, there are many different words for wanting and desire. There's the word lobha, which means greed, grasping, addiction. Addiction to pleasure, addiction to some sense experience. Then there's another word for desire, which is more neutral. It simply means the will to do, jetana. It's the intention we have to do something. And it can be associated with greed and grasping or with something else, with kindness or with understanding. In fact, there's a whole separate word for desire when it's associated with compassion or with wisdom, with the absence of self-centeredness. Now, traditional Buddhist teachings, especially those that are taught in more dualistic ways, talk about channeling desire. And one of the names in Sanskrit for desire is chanda. One of the long lists of the factors of enlightenment include chanda. Let me see if I can describe it to you. Where are we? Here's the old Buddhist text. The quality of chanda. It is described as the basis for attaining perfection. By chanda is meant desire to obtain, desire to reach, to fulfill, to accomplish. Extreme, excessive. There is nothing within or without that can obstruct such a desire, the desire for awakening or enlightenment. If I do not accomplish this in this life, I will never rest contented. This is one of the qualities said to be a quality of enlightenment. And then it's described in this way. Let only my skins and skin and sinews and bones remain. Let my flesh and blood and my body dry up. I shall not permit the course of my effort in meditation and spiritual life to stop until I attain that which may be attained by human effort and human ability and human exertion until I too am awakened. So that's the word chanda. Um, and it's a very powerful energy. It's a kind of passion but it's a spiritual passion. The desire to fulfill. So Horton kept sitting there day after day, 
and soon it was autumn, the leaves blew away, and then came the winter, the snow and the sleet, and icicles hung from his trunk and his feet. But Horton kept sitting and said with his sneeze, I'll stay on this egg, I won't let it freeze. I meant what I said, and I said what I meant, an elephant's faithful 100%. That sort of modern-day chanda. Right? Now, this steadfastness, this wanting that is that quality, can be the desire for awakening or something noble, but it also can be the desire for power and control. Henry Kissinger said that there is one rule in negotiations before you sit down at the table with your enemies or whoever it is. Know what you want and plan to get it. Someone asked the spiritual teacher once, I wish myself to become a teacher of the truth. And the teacher looked back at them, to the student, and said, Are you prepared to be ridiculed, to be regularly ignored, impoverished, or taken for granted until you are 45 years old? And the student said, thought about it for a bit, and said, Yes, I think I could put up with that, but then what happens? And the teacher said, Then you will have grown accustomed to it. So it says, know what you want. I mean, do you want to be a teacher, or was there some other agenda that you might have had in there beside being a teacher of the truth? Maybe your agenda, again, is like Henry Kissinger. Maybe it's that same chanda, but associated with desire for power, desire for strength. And underneath that, when it arises, we can see insecurity or fear or need for self-aggrandizement, out of which that desire can equally come as a desire for enlightenment, awakening, serving all beings. It becomes kind of tricky when you work with that much power in human beings. So how to understand it? The Buddha again suggests, if we are to live in a wakeful way as human beings, to begin to notice when desire arises, when we are filled, when the mind and body is filled with desire. When desire is absent, when we let go of it, what is its quality? In other words, to begin to study it, to include it in the dimension of this capacity we have for presence or attention. Because unless we understand it, our lives will pretty much be lost if we don't understand desire. It's such a central force in life. It will mean that we're asleep. So we begin to study it. What is skillful desire? Is there such a thing as skillful desire? What is unskillful desire? A friend with whom I have worked occasionally, a, a student of Vipassana, and a very fine teacher who deals with hunger and eating, eating disorder, Janine Roth, has written several books, including one entitled Feeding the Hungry Heart and another entitled When Food is Love. And a great deal of what she writes about is the displacement of desire that we use substitutes like food to fill something that's much deeper in us, in our hearts, feeding the hungry heart. And out of that displacement then, when we feel isolation or grief, or some other sorrow. Instead, we eat, or we turn on the TV, or we buy something new. We distract ourselves with desire. So in studying desire, we want to both notice what arises in us, and also we want to notice what its source is. Is that really what we want, what we're longing for? The distraction, if we don't notice it, easily turns into addiction. And we know that because we've talked in here a lot about the addicted society within which we live and the level of speed and complexity and compulsion and distraction that is the norm for modern society. So we don't have to feel so much. So we don't have to feel loss or pain or insecurity or fear 
as T.S. Eliot wrote in the Four Quartets, humankind cannot bear too much reality, is his line. So what direction do our desires take us, our own personal desires? It's good to study them. As my teacher Ajahn Shah said, it may be a very fast car, but you ought to look at what road you're going down, which way it's headed. They go different ways. Now, Abraham Maslow, as a founder of humanistic psychology, talked about the different levels of human needs as kind of a pyramid, the fundamental needs of survival, food and shelter. And then on top of that, the, the also quite fundamental need of emotional warmth, connection. And then social needs in the society, needs for meaning, and meaningful work and contribution. And finally, at the top of his pyramid was spiritual needs. Which kind of needs or desires do we spend most of our time focused on? Again, without any judgment or without saying what's right or wrong, sometimes when survival is at stake, that is the place to put all your attention. But if we want to understand this, what is the place from which we live in our life? Which of those levels? Where are we obsessed? Where are we caught? Where are we wise? Where is the desire, wise desire, necessary desire? <coughs> Carl Jung. Another aspect of desire. Eros, passion, love. The erotic instinct is something questionable and will always be so, whatever future laws may have to say on it. It belongs, on one hand, to our original animal nature, which will exist as long as we have an animal body. On the other hand, it connects us with the highest form of spirit. But it blooms only when spirit and instinct are in true harmony. If one or the other aspect is missing, an injury occurs, a one-sided lack of balance, a pathology. Too much of the animal disfigures the civilized human being. Too much, too much culture makes for a sick animal. So you begin to look at what desire is to be alive and to want. And study it. You can feel it in your own body. There's a contracted quality that comes, or an openness, a release. Notice what your body does when wanting arises. When does it begin? What's it like when it ends? You know, you've wanted something and finally you get it to eat or hear or touch or, or wear or whatever that, that physical desire is. You fulfill it. What happens when you start to fulfill it? What, what does your body feel like? Ah, finally I have it. Is there a relaxing of that contraction? And then what happens if there is? How long does that last? You know, what supplants it? What comes next? This is really the study of being a human being. Or you study it in the mind. What is associated with desire? Is there fear? Grasping? Love? When the different kinds of desire arise, is our heart present with them? Do we feel disconnected from our heart? Or connected to it? Notice that. Mullah Nasruddin went to a friend one day and he said, I'm here in disguise. His friend said, what are you disguised as? Mullah Nasruddin said, myself. He said, that's not a disguise, that's who you are. Nasruddin looked back and said, see, I told you it was a good disguise. <laughs> there is, if you pay attention what is called the desire body. And then there is the heart. And there's a difference between them, not to say one is good or bad, but just to begin to investigate the difference between them, between the body, that small identity that feels needy and frightened, and that place that's connected with a greater love, beauty, appreciation, connection. I was at a wedding this week, this just a couple of days ago, a very good friend, actually it was yesterday. 
someone was talking about how can we make love endure? And one of the responses was, love other, how can we make our love endure as in a marriage? The response from someone was, love other things together. Not to love other, but to share in loving something greater than yourself. That's different than the desire body. That's a a bigger kind of love. So what is desire again? What makes it different from love? Brian Swim, who works with Matthew Fox, calls it allurement, like gravity. It's this force that pulls things together. The sun and the earth are pulled together by gravity. We're held on the earth by gravity. And we're drawn to one another, even though it all came out of the Big Bang 20 billion years ago or whatever it was. It wants to come back together again and reconnect. This fundamental force of life, of being, of reconnecting. The desire to be one, to remember and reconnect. Now, in traditional monastic teachings in Buddhism, there's a, there's a kind of ascetic flavor and a, a quite strongly dualistic um, description of practice. Dualistic means good and bad and right and wrong. And so when they speak about desire in the monastic teachings especially, it's get rid of it, abandon it, release yourself. It causes you endless trouble, have you not noticed? Best to live without it. And particularly, using the phrase of the Buddha that I read tonight, sensual passion is trouble for you. Desire must be uprooted. Get rid of it. And the antithesis of that, passion, is viragha, which is dispassion desirelessness. Ah, to come to a state of desirelessness. Now, when you really want something and you can't get it, it's true. Because it's such torture to be in that deep wanting and not have it. Desirelessness is wonderful. But the question for us is, is that what freedom is? Freedom is talked about as selflessness. No self, no desires, no passion. No attachments, even to your family and friends and loved ones, you know, easy come, easy go, kind of thing. Is that freedom? It is a certain kind of freedom, perhaps. Is that what enlightenment is about? And if so, how many of you want it? Were that true? Really? Rather than say that it is or it isn't tonight, I'd I'd rather challenge you than give you the party line or give you my own answer of how I synthesize it, because it's too important a question for anyone in spiritual practice to take someone else's answer. This summer, Thich Nhat Hanh, Vietnamese Zen master and wonderful teacher, gave a series of teachings in Plum Village in France for some hundreds of people um, entitled Vipassana in the Mahayana tradition, or Vipassana practice. For nearly a month he gave a series of lectures. And partway through as he began, He said, I have a very personal story to tell you in relation to awareness uh, and mindfulness, a very personal story that I've never told before. And that's all he said for a while. And then he continued to teach over a number of days about the Buddha's instructions on being aware as the breath comes in and out and being aware of the heart opening and closing and desire being present and not and fear and anger. And one morning as he was going through the teachings of that which leads to presence, wakefulness, to the deathless, as the Buddha said. He stopped for a moment. Then he looked out at everyone and he said, she was just 20 years old when I fell in love with her. And all of a sudden, the level of attention in the room (laughs) rose (laughs) measurably. You could hear a pin drop. Ah, it's one thing to read the old Buddhist texts, <laughs> isn't it? He said, I was 23 years old and I had been a monk since I was a young boy. And I was teaching. But I was teaching by what I had been trained. I was invited to go and give lectures 
on the Buddhist teachings. I taught by what I had studied, but I didn't yet really have my own knowledge. And in the background of my teaching was the war, the interminable war in Vietnam. This was still the war when the French and the Vietnamese were fighting before the Americans thought they could do better somehow. It's kind of like Dr. Zhivago or something, the background of great war and suffering and the sorrows of those dramas. And I went to Hue, which was my, uh, near where my own home was from, at Tet, at Vietnamese New Year. And I was asked to give teachings in this monastery. The old abbot was absent for the New Year. And as I was entering the monastery, walking up the steps to the main hall, I saw her come down the stairs. And he began talking about the very deep feelings that he had for this young woman and the romance that began as an accident and that wasn't supposed to happen to a young monk and was never consummated because that wasn't allowed in their vows, but how deeply and passionately in love with this woman he was. He talked about it for a while. And then he said, if you cannot understand falling in love, you will not understand the Buddhist teachings of attention. You won't understand mindfulness, heartfulness, what we're teaching for this whole month together, the true presence of being. For it requires, remember that word chanda that I talked about, it requires a kind of passion, the passion for the spirit of awakening, the passion for all beings that motivates and guides our practice. If you can remember what it was like to be really in love with someone, then maybe you can begin to sense what it means to bring a full presence to your life, a full attention. I have a friend who is writing her doctoral thesis as a psychologist on the erotic countertransference that certain psychiatrists and analysts, women, female psychiatrists and analysts, have toward their patients, which is to say, instead of erotic countertransference, that means that for these women who are psychoanalysts or psychiatrists, that sometimes in having patients who they work with, there arises a romantic, erotic uh, desire. And she said, there's almost nothing been written about it. There's some written about that which happens between men as therapists or psychiatrists, but very little about women. And we talked about this and said, well, how could it not happen? We're human beings. I wonder why it's not been written about. Whenever there is true intimacy, there comes some of that element of eros or passion in some way. Not necessarily erotic in the sexual sense, but erotic in the sense of electric, alive, present. I remember the first, one of the first um, studies that I did in when I was just beginning graduate school after I came back from the monasteries. Um, and I had a therapist, a woman who was very gifted, who I worked with. I was about 28 years old or 27 years old at that time, maybe. And she was 68. And one week I fell completely in love with her. And it wasn't, and it wasn't so much sexual, but there was an element of that. And I was shocked uh, because she wasn't someone that I would imagine who was 40 years older that all of this erotic sexual stuff would come about. But it did in part because it was a place where there was so much intimacy and so much respect and so much attention that all of that gravity came to. There is in us and I was connected with it in that moment, a deep longing to be fully alive, to live with a kind of passion. 
And in each human being, there is a tremendous creativity. I was reading this new book, Reflections, from Joseph Campbell. And Joseph Campbell loved the hero's journey. That was kind of his thing. And I, I enjoyed the times that I was with Joseph Campbell and admire him greatly. But hero's journey was like his, his great life archetype of all the many myths that he studied. So here he is, this is down at Esalen, of course, is where this conversation takes place, talking about passion and art. He said, some artists are in pain, others are not. Picasso had a run of wives and women that was just fantastic. What one wife did would not have mattered a bit. I don't think it's possible to interpret Picasso's life as one of pain. In the Picasso retrospective, which I went to at the Museum of Modern Art and studied for a while, there was one room filled with about 25 paintings that he had done in a single day. What is it that impelled him to that fury of action? He was certainly the type of artist in whom life is so abundant that art is easily handled, which shows the great skill in his nature. And then I studied Wagner's autobiography. Fantastic. That guy was writing three operas, carrying on three love affairs, and actually being resentful that the women's husbands would not give money to help produce his opera. <laughs> this, this is sort of admiration from Joseph Campbell. There are obviously problems with that, uh, which we will just mention, but the glorification of certain things whether it's skillful or not. Um, but what we're talking about when we look at desire and love and passion um, is this very deep capacity and forth, force in our life. To begin to study it means to study the heart. So during this week, as the week goes through, you might listen to the levels of that pyramid or the chords of desire the desire of your body, the desire of loneliness to connect, the love of all things, a desire to be in nature. Some of it will be the holes because you weren't mothered or because of your father wound or because there's no village anymore or no elders or because we're so isolated very often in our lives or don't have meaningful work or because of some great abuse that a third of the people in this room have experienced. There was a Kayapo Indian woman who went to a meeting that was held to determine whether they were going to put a large dam on the rivers that went through the tribal land. And she stood up at one point in the meeting and she shouted, "I." We don't want your dams on our river. Your mothers did not hold you enough. You are all orphans. And she sat back down. It's quite a statement, isn't it? About white people. Your mothers did not hold you enough. You are all orphans. And to the extent that it is true, we wreak havoc in the world because if we don't know it and don't heal it, then we destroy the world seeking something that's not to be found in the conquering of the world. So that's one level of desire, desire from the hungry heart, from the holes within us, from the orphan. But there are other desires, again, beauty, passion, when death, that great reconciler, has come, it is never our tenderness that we repent of, but our severity alone. In the end, what matters is how much and how well we've loved. Perhaps what we most deeply desire is immensely simple. To reclaim our humanity our animal nature that Jung talked about, the wondrous senses, the sense of the spirit of awe. Today is the beginning of the Jewish New Year, the beginning of the days of awe, the remembering, the reawakening of that sense of gratitude and mystery for life. 
So Kazantzakis wrote, How simple and frugal a thing is true happiness. A glass of wine, a roast chestnut on a wretched little brazier, the sound of the sea, all that is required is a simple, frugal heart. Perhaps what we most desire is immensely simple, to reclaim, to respect, to love that animal being that we are, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching in this world. So when Thich Nhat Hanh spoke of his love affair, or when he said the year before last he came and taught here at Spirit Rock and elsewhere in America, he said, I almost didn't come. It was just when we had started the Iraq-Kuwait war. And he said, it made me so furious and angry at your country and at what was being done. I was so angry that I just couldn't bring myself to come and teach in America. Hundreds of thousands of people needlessly killed. The greatest majority of those wounded, sick, and still in danger, children. A quarter of a million people, the majority of them children. And then he said, I decided I wouldn't cancel my trip anyway even though I felt that it just take a lot, it took a lot of days and a lot of inner work to get to a place to see that I too could do that, that I too could kill in that way. Something in me could do that, and that we all can. So one thing is to reclaim our humanity, all the things that make us human, and to honor that. And another is to touch that which is timeless, to live each moment or each day and let that movement and that action be connected with that which is sacred or eternal. In each little movement it's there. There's a wonderful story from the emperor of China who asked this monk who said, everything is connected with everything else. He said, can you make a demonstration of this? So the monk had a great room constructed with 16 sides, and all of the 16 sides were covered with large mirrors. And in the center of this room, 16-sided room in the palace, he hung a little crystal. And he called the emperor into the room when it was finished, and he said, look in the crystal. And the emperor first looked in the crystal and he saw the mirrors and out the mirrors facing one another were an infinite number of crystals in every direction. That one little thing was everywhere, thousands. And then he said, look closer, the master said, and he looked in one facet of the crystal and there were all the mirrors reflected in one little facet. Everything connects with everything else. They all go through our heart in the same way. Now, how does this relate to the Satipatthana Sutta where we started and the Buddha's discovery of peace, the deathless freedom? As we sit and walk and eat and pay attention, various desires will come and go. Longings, hopes, pains that you want to move from and want something else. I usually sit and wait until I want to get up at least three times before I get up. It's really interesting just to do that and see the waves of desire come and pass away. And as we sit and pay attention and open, our identity expands and we move from the small body of needs and fears, our personal history, our past suffering and grief. We breathe and open to something that's greater, the world of beauty and sorrow around us. And if we rest in that, we begin to discover that what we most seek or desire is the end of seeking, Mm -hmm. is the end of desiring. Try it. See if that's so for yourself. Does this mean that we should be detached, otherworldly? There's a space, the Tao, the mother of all things, that holds us in a safeguarding, irrespective of birth or death the ground of our being. 
between our small self, those limited desires, and the great sense of the world and the suffering, the things that we face if we open, there is some connection, some participation, some interdependence. You know that the water you drink that comes out of the tap in Marin from Lake Lagunitas or in San Francisco, that the water, the fresh water that we have, there's no more water on this earth than there was a million years ago or a hundred million years ago or almost a billion years ago. It's the same exact water. And it's just been cycled over and over. There's no more of it or less of it. Sometime long ago, as the elements formed, there was a certain amount of it created on the earth. And we all drink the same water. And then it goes back through our septic systems and back out into the ocean and up into the clouds and it comes down again. And most of our body is made of water and that too will go back to the oceans and the air. So to pay attention, then, is to expand our sense of self from this small desire body to realize that we can live with passion and with love for ourselves that is greater, the whole of the earth, seven generations. And this is what redeems us in this world of human form. There's a story of Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva, a Buddha, who took a vow to create such goodness in the world that anyone who uttered his name would be freed and purified and awakened. And he went through all the realms of heavens and um, hungry ghosts and hell realms, freed all beings. And then as he looked back, he saw that more beings started to pour back into those realms out of misunderstanding of who they were and small self and desire. And he started to weep. A tear came out of each eye And from those tears were born green Tara and white Tara, the goddesses of compassion and mercy. One is the tear of the activity of compassion, a thousand arms to touch every being and remind them, you are not who you think you are. You are the Buddha already. And the other tear to hold the world as the mother, the tear that rests with a presence and holds every being in her heart. Perhaps there's nothing worth desiring but love itself. Look and see as you study it. Not to get or to attain, but to be it or to offer it. And this is what's healing in the end, to discover that we are the source of our own desire and longing, and we are the end of it. My teacher Nisargadot in India used to say, the trouble with you is not your desires, the trouble is you do not desire enough. Why not desire everything? You could have it all. Somebody said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, it is now or never. It is here in the eternal present. All that you ever seek is always here with you how much in your life you are caught with small desires that will satisfy you for a moment. But how much in your life could you live in your greatness, in your Buddha nature, without holding back with your full love and attention and passion? And then, what would it be like to live? Passion for life, for the earth, for all things. That month at Thich Nhat Hanh's village, people wrote a little poem and put it in their shoes and left it in there so that every time they went out of the meditation hall to put their shoes on, they would read it first because it was there inside their shoe. And it said on it, I walk for you, which means that everything that I do, every step I take is for you, for another, for the beloved, for the world around. A passion for connecting with the sacred, with that which is greater. This is Jewish New Year, Shana Tova. Be happy, be blessed, be fruitful in the new year. Be appreciative of the blessings of life. Be passionate in your study and study desire. Study what it is that you really want in yourself, in your community, in your heart. 
Notice when it comes and goes. Notice the desires you live from and what it would be like to live fully, fully awake. And so I guess I will end by reading you a story of passion just for the fun of it. Okay? This is from Rumi, Poetry, his new book, One-Handed Basket Weaving. Titled Bread Making. There was a feast. The king was heartily in his cups, drunk, if you will. He saw a learned scholar walking by. Bring him in and give him some of this fine wine, said the king. The servants rushed out and brought the man to the king's table, but he was not receptive. I had rather drink poison. I've never tasted wine and never will. Take it away from me. He kept on with these loud refusals, disturbing the atmosphere of the feast. This is how it is sometimes at God's table, you know. Have you not noticed? Someone who has heard about ecstatic love, someone who has heard about presence but never tasted it, disrupts the banquet. If there were only a secret passage from his ear to his throat, everything in him would change. Initiation would occur. As it is, he's all fire but no light, all husk and no kernel. So the king gave an order. Cupbearer, do what you must. (laughs) Now mind you, this isn't just about alcohol. This is how your invisible guide acts, the chess champion across from you that always wins. He cuffed the scholar's head and said, taste. And again, the cup was drained and the intellectual started singing and telling ridiculous jokes. (laughs) He joined the garden, snapping his fingers and swaying, enjoying himself. Soon, of course, he had to pee. He went out and there, near the latrine, was a beautiful woman, one of the king's harem. His mouth hung open. He wanted her right then, and she was not unwilling. They fell, too, on the ground. You've seen a baker rolling dough, gently kneaded at first, more roughly, pounded on the board, spread out, rolled flat, bunches it, rolls it out again. Now he adds water and mixes it well. Now salt, a little more salt. Now he shapes it delicately to its final shape and slides it into the oven, which is already hot. You remember bread making. I know you do, he says. This is how your desire tangles with the desired one. And it's not just a metaphor for a man and a woman making love. Warriors in battle do like this too. A great mutual embrace is always happening between the eternal and what dies, between essence and accident. The sport has different rules in every case, but basically it's the same game, remember. The way you make love is the way that God will be with you. So these two were lost in their sexual trance, and they did not care anymore about feasting or wine. Their eyes were closed like perfectly matching calligraphy lines. The king went looking for the scholar, and when he saw them coupled there, commented, Well, as it is said, a good king must serve his subjects from his own table. (laughs) There is joy, a wine-like freedom that dissolves the heart, and mind and restores the spirit. And there's a manly fortitude like the king's, a reasonableness that accepts the bewildered lostness of others. So meditate now, my friends, on presence, steadfastness, clarity, and let those be the wings that lift and soar you through the celestial spheres. Let's sit for a minute.
Notice as you sit whatever is present, the breath passes in and out. Thoughts, images, desires come and go. Let yourself be aware and truly present as if you loved this moment, its heat or sweat, the crickets, just being alive. Notice what tempts you away. See if you can sense in yourself that gracious king or queen that can give away everything from your banquet table because there's such abundance in your own being, your own Buddha nature, your own heart. I want to chant a blessing chant tonight to end, Um, and I'll translate it, and then we'll chant a simple sound together. (coughs) Sapitiyo viwachantu saparo kovinasatu madepavadvantarayo sukhitika yukobhava abhivatana sile sanichanguta bachahino Chataru tamavatandi ayuvano sukang palam yathavarivaha puraparipurenti sakarang evameva itotinang petanang upakapati ichitang pachitang tumhang kipameva sabe samichu pankpapai Janto Banaraso Matamidi wrote Sotiraso Yata. Just as the water that previously flowed in the hills and rivers fills the ocean, so may the spirit of your gifts to the earth, to one another, from your heart, reach and benefit all beings, those alive and those who have departed. May all your wishes soon be fulfilled as completely as the moon on full moon day, and as successfully as if conferred through the power of the wonderful wish-fulfilling gem. May all dangers be avoided. May all suffering and distress be dissipated from your life. May no obstacles come across your way, and may you enjoy happiness and long life. And may you who are present and respectful, who live in the way of the Dharma, prosper in four great blessings, in age, in beauty, in happiness, and in strength. And may you bring these blessings to touch all beings in the world around you. May you have a happy year. Let us chant together simply the sound ah, opening, letting go. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.